Song of Solomon, chapter 3. Congregation, give your careful attention, for this is the word of God. On my bed by night I sought him whom my soul loves. I sought him but found him not. I will rise now and go about the city in the streets and in the squares. I will seek him whom my soul loves. I sought him but found him not. The watchmen found me as they went about in the city. Have you seen him whom my soul loves? Scarcely had I passed them when I found him whom my soul loves. I held him and would not let him go until I'd brought him into my mother's house and into the chamber of her who conceived me. And then moving over to John chapter 20, verses 1 to 18. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him, and he went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting there where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he said these things to her. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, this is the holy word of God. This is your disclosure to your people. And by our own intellect and our own hearing, Lord, we have no hope of appropriating it. And so our petition this morning, O Lord, is by your spirit, you would take these words and that you would apply them to our souls. 
that you would draw us ever nearer to Christ. Fill our hearts, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we don't see much of Mary Magdalene in the Gospels. She is, by all accounts, a relatively minor character. She shows up very little and speaks even less. Still, there is an undeniable significance to her. She is mentioned in all four Gospels, albeit briefly for the most part, and she is given more stage time than some of the lesser-known apostles. The church over the years, and especially the Roman Catholic Church, has attempted to enhance our understanding of her by embellishing the gaps left in the biblical record. The result has not been flattering to Mary Magdalene. In the year 591, Pope Gregory the Great stated that the unnamed immoral woman of Luke 7.37 and following was Mary Magdalene. This unnamed woman of Luke 7 was believed to be a harlot. And Pope Gregory's linking of Mary to this unnamed woman undoubtedly cemented the view among many that Mary Magdalene was a prostitute. The history of art and modern dramatizations have furthered this insinuation, though the Bible never makes such a claim. The view has fallen out of favor somewhat in recent years. In 1969, the Second Vatican Council offered correction by indicating that the unnamed immoral woman of Luke 7 was not Mary Magdalene. Luke chapter 8 verse 1 gives us the earliest biblical account of Mary. There we are told of Christ's itinerant preaching from one city and village to another. Luke tells us that the disciples traveled with him as did, quote, some women who had been healed of evil spirits and sicknesses. Mary, who was called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. Mary had endured the torment of severe demon possession and was relieved of this torture directly through the healing ministry of Christ. Luke goes on to say that these women had provided for Jesus and the disciples out of their own means. Mary now dedicating her life to following Jesus. She was a devoted disciple of Christ. Most commonly, we know her as one of the women who were there at the cross when Christ was crucified. She was there when his body was laid in the tomb, and she was among those women who were first to visit the empty tomb on Easter morning. It was Mary Magdalene who first brought the news of the empty tomb to the disciples. This led the 13th century Roman Catholic theologian, philosopher Thomas Aquinas, to refer to her as the Apostolorum Apostola, that is, the Apostle of the Apostles. Her appearances in Matthew, Mark, and Luke are brief. She is a witness to the crucifixion of Jesus, and she is an Easter witness to the resurrection, and she is always, always named as one among other women. But John is different. In John 20, Mary is alone. John orients his narrative around the shocking event of an empty tomb. 
The corpse of Jesus had been laid there just two days prior. Access to the tomb was blocked by a large stone and put under careful guard of Roman soldiers. Throughout John's gospel, the reader has been prepared for this moment. We are anticipating the the glorious lifting up of the Savior, culminating in resurrection. And one might expect, as this anticipated moment arrives, that the beloved disciple himself would draw the reader into his own autobiographical encounter. That John would use his own story to declare to us that something marvelous had occurred. That the Savior's tomb, that inescapable prison of the dead, had been deprived of its treasure. And now, through the resurrection, is reluctantly forced to bear witness to eternal life. But John is different. In John's account, as the story reaches its climax, the camera lens is focused on the minor character, Mary Magdalene. We don't see or hear of the other women. Peter and the beloved disciple make only a brief appearance. John fixes our attention on Mary Magdalene. In fact, he uses her name as a kind of structural guide to help shape the entire narrative. If you look in your Bibles, note in verse 1, he refers to her as Mary Magdalene. In verse 11, she is Mary. In verse 13, woman. And then these three identifiers are repeated in reverse order. In verse 15, woman. In verse 16, Mary. And in verse 18, Mary Magdalene. This intentional structuring tells us that John saw something in Mary's story that moves him to isolate the Eastern narrative around her world. He wants to draw us into this this narrative uniquely through Mary's Easter encounter. The Song of Solomon is a love poem. It poetically captures the affection of two lovers, a man and a woman, and the maturing of their love for one another until it blossoms in the consummation of that union in marriage. That sweet, tender, intimate bond they share is captured in Song of Solomon 2.16 when the bride-to-be declares, My beloved is mine, and I am his. In chapter 3, we are told it is the night, and in the darkness of that night, the bride-to-be is seeking the man whom her soul loves. In verses 1 to 2, her seeking is repeated four times. This creates both emphasis and tension. On my bed, night after night, I sought him. I sought him, but did not find him. I must seek him whom my soul loves. I sought him but did not find him. And the Hebrew word used for seeking in all these cases is of a form which expresses intensive action. This is not a casual seeking. There is a franticness to her search. She is separated from the one she loves. And in that separation, her whole world and all of its possible complexities has become very simple. Everything has become subservient to this one question. Just this one question. 
Have you seen him whom my soul loves? Each of the four verses of first four verses of chapter three contain the phrase, him whom my soul loves. It's an additional point of emphasis. In verse one, she does not find him, though she seeks him frantically still. In verse two, she does not find him. And then in verse three, she is found. She's found by the watchmen, the guardians, as they make their rounds about the city. And after being found, then she finds him whom her soul loves. And we read there that she held on to him and would not let him go. Mary approaches the tomb and John tells us it is dark. John is aware of Mary's traveling companions, those other women we are told of in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But he controls the camera lens so that we are not permitted to see or hear them. For the purposes of John's narrative, they do not speak. They are invisible. The focus here is on Mary. John is aware of the others. There is no contradiction. For when Mary sees the stone has been removed, she runs to tell the disciples and reports they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. We, plural, do not know where they have laid him. John is aware of the others, but the focus is on Mary. We last saw Mary in this gospel in the previous chapter, there at the foot of the cross, standing with three other women. But now as she approaches this tomb on the third day, the narrative isolates upon her and her lonely suffering. Those horrifying images of the crucifixion still fresh in her mind. Her world has been profoundly shaken. How is she to understand the bloodied and broken body of her Lord? Her every moment now spent in contemplations riddled with deep sorrow and torturing confusion. The joy she had in her constant communion with Christ now sadly replaced by untimely, unwelcome, unrelenting grief. How can the one who held sovereign sway, even over the demons, be nailed to a cross by the hands of wicked men? How can God let the betrayal and deceit of others silence the Lord of love and the Lord of life? The darkness of that early morning is recorded in John's typical style. It's to alert us to a darkness that enshrouds Mary Magdalene. Soon she will be enveloped in the light of Easter morning, but for now, for her, it is still dark. And so she arrives at the tomb, and she sees that the stone has been moved away, and she doesn't even venture to enter. Rather, she runs to tell the disciples, they have taken away the body of the Lord. Robbers, thieves, darkness. Darkness. She doesn't understand. She doesn't understand. She misunderstands and in her panic she runs to tell the disciples her misunderstanding. 
In a very short while, she's going to echo this misunderstanding to two angels and to the risen Lord himself. Why does she think the body has been taken? Because it is dark. John uses light and darkness symbolically to capture not only the absence of daylight, but the absence of understanding. From the very beginning in this gospel, John 1.4, we are told that in Christ was life, and the life was the light of man. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Jesus will go on to say in chapter 8, I am the light of the world. You follow me, and you will not walk in darkness. You may be familiar with that story in chapter 3 when Nicodemus, the teacher of the law, the educated teacher of the law, comes to Jesus in the darkness. And in the darkness, he is not able to understand even the simple things, the new birth of the new birth that Jesus proclaimed. Later, Judas Iscariot will go out to betray Jesus. And John is careful to point out that as Judas left, it was night. Judas left into the darkness. You see here the light of Easter morning has not yet pushed away the darkness in Mary's understanding. And so upon hearing her panicked report, Peter and John now race to the tomb. There's a lot of running going on now. Mary runs to the disciples. Peter and John seem to be in a race to the tomb. There is a franticness about this. Where is the body? Dear congregation, to this day, there is no more significant question. What happened to the body of Jesus Christ? It should cause every one of us to scurry until we find the answer. Turn over every stone. Look in every corner of the world. This is the most serious, critical, and important question that can be put to a person, and it needs to be put to every person. You see, Christianity is not just another religious philosophy. It's not just another opinion on how we ought to live our lives or what we do to make the biggest impact. Christianity stands or falls on the historical reality that the dead body of Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. Listen to the Apostle Paul speak of this in the most straightforward way in 1 Corinthians 15. He said, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. That Christ died for our sins. And that he was buried. And that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. There can be absolutely no denying what the Apostle Paul thought of the claim that Christ was raised. Paul saw the resurrected Christ with his own eyes. And he would go on to write in 1 Corinthians 15, 17, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. If Christ has not been raised, historically raised, literally bodily raised, there is no Christianity. End of story. But unlike Mary... When Peter and John reach the tomb, they enter it. And the body of Jesus is not there, but the tomb is not empty. What is there, Christ 
linen burial wrappings. And the face cloth neatly folded off by itself. This is not the kind of thing one would expect if the body had been taken. Robbers don't tidy up. No, you, the reader, know what's happened. And John and Peter now better understand, and they leave to their homes. But when Mary returns to the tomb, she weeps. In John chapter 11, Jesus came to the home of his just-deceased disciple and friend, Lazarus. Jesus asked where the body of Lazarus had been laid. He then came to the tomb of Lazarus and wept. Jesus wept. In like manner, Mary comes to Jesus' tomb and she weeps. These two scenes intersect. You see, Jesus entered Mary's world to take on her weeping and ultimately take on the penalty for her sin so that she may take on the eternal joy of his resurrection life and never weep again. But at this point, as she peers into the tomb, she still does not see. Though she is aware of the presence of two angels, she still cannot understand. Her pre-resurrection faith still obscures her view. Oh, but surely these angels must know where the body is. As the angels shouted for joy at the first creation, Job 38, 7, so these heavenly heralds were filled with heaven's joy over this new creation. Woman, why are you weeping? Think about this. If heaven rejoices over the repentant conversion of one sinner, imagine what exultant joy there must be over the resurrection of the Savior who opens the door to the salvation of many. Oh, the joy that must have filled these angelic messengers over the resurrection of Jesus. Oh, the puzzlement that must have greeted them as they saw Mary's sorrowful response. Mary weeps in the despair of her darkness. They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Are you hearing it? Are you hearing the resolute, strong voice of her heart? Her whole world and all of its possible complexities has become very simple. Everything has become subservient to this one question, just this one question. Have you seen him whom my soul loves? Though we may be tempted to impugn Mary for her obtuseness in the face of the clear signature of resurrection, should we not also marvel that she remains at the tomb? Peter and John have moved on, but Mary remains. She cannot, she will not leave without her Savior, so she frantically searches for him. Have you seen him whom my soul loves? In a kind of Reversal of the synoptic parable of the lost sheep. Here we have the appearance of a lamb seeking for her lost shepherd. But though she searches frantically for him, she cannot find him. Ah, 
but then Jesus finds her. That's always the way it is in the covenant of grace. Seek him with all your heart, but know it is he who finds you. It is always the good shepherd who finds his sheep. And she turns around and she is aware that Jesus is there, but she doesn't recognize him. Still too dark. And so her resurrected Savior, standing before her very eyes, repeats the angel's question, Woman, why are you weeping? And with greatest irony, she says to her risen Savior, If you have taken him, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. The attentive reader at this point is bursting at the scenes. She is speaking to the very one who has authority to lay down his life and says no one has authority to take it up. And she says, if you have removed him, tell me where you have laid him that I may take him. If you removed him from the tomb, tell me where you put him as he stands before her alive outside the tomb. Note further that she is, at this point, bargaining for a corpse. If all goes well, she will be holding the dead body of the one she once knew as Lord. But he has something far greater in store for her. And so Christ now speaks into her darkness. His sheep know his voice, and he calls them by name. He speaks her name, Mary. And the omnipotent voice of God pushes aside the darkness. Let there be light. And her world is once again shaken. Suddenly she sees the light of resurrection. Rabboni, teacher. The scene unfolds as if there is a sudden surprise reunion. She embraces Jesus. I have found him whom my soul loves. And I held on to him and would not let him go. Song of Solomon 3.4. She is not carrying a corpse, but embracing him whom her soul loves. You see, the Lord does not always give us what we ask for, but he does give us what we need. And yet Jesus cautions her. Do not cling to me. This response to her embrace may strike a strange note in our hearing. It may sound as if Mary's embrace is greeted with a rebuke. But we need not nor should not view it in that fashion. Her embrace is not offensive. It is not ill-conceived. Rather, it lacks the eternal perspective Christ's resurrection declares. Jesus interrupts this tender moment, in effect saying, not yet. There is still something greater to come. I must return to the Father. I have something bigger and even more grand planned for my beloved. Things which eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor has it entered into the mind of man. Recall how Jacob had to work seven years in order to be granted Rachel as his wife. 
Genesis 29.20 tells us that Jacob served seven years for Rachel and they seemed to him but a few days because of his love for her. During those seven years, Jacob lived in an in-between time. He had access to Rachel, but it was far short of what he longed for. And yet the assurance that a day of fullness would come made the in-between time bearable. It was worth the wait. Mary will now live in an in-between time. Knowing that her Savior is alive, but that something far greater is yet to come. Believe it or not, something far greater than even this face-to-face earthly garden encounter. And the hope of that joyful day will grant her endurance as she journeys through the trials of this life. John's artistically described artistically crafted description allows us to enter this narrative through the life of Mary. We are drawn into this story through Mary's life. We encounter the risen Savior through Mary's encounter. It is intended to be personal for us. The resurrection of Jesus is crucial to the doctrine of salvation. It declares that the penalty for sins has been paid in full. That repentant sinners are made right before God through faith in Christ. It declares that death has lost its grip on Jesus. And through Jesus has lost its grip on all who believe and trust in him. Those who embrace Christ will not be disappointed. They will most certainly share in his eternal reward. But now we, like Mary, live in an in-between time. And in this life, the finish line of our Christian race can seem distant and remote, tucked away on the top of a very steep and wieldy hill, and there are many obstacles and heavy burdens we carry. And the Bible's strategy for Christian pilgrims is to keep our eyes on the prize. Paul says in Philippians 3 that he forgets what lies behind and he reaches forward to what lies ahead, that he may press on for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. The darkness of Mary's repeated alarm, they have taken away the body of the Lord, has been overcome by the glorious light of resurrection. She is no longer in the dark. Standing next to an empty tomb, her reputation is not impugned. Rather, she is exalted as the first witness of the resurrection. And though she journeyed to this tomb in the dark, she makes the first recorded Easter confession of resurrection light. I have seen the Lord. She is enfolded in the light of Christ. And though those words of her frantic seeking through this can now be transformed. No longer the desperate panic, have you seen him whom my soul loves? But now these become an invitation. I have seen the Lord, have you seen him whom my soul loves? 
Not are you aware of him? Have you seen him? Do you know him? Do you love him? Have you embraced him? The gospel of Christ is a love story. It captures the boundless affection which originates in the mysterious, incomprehensible mind of God. It is an affection born out of the eternal love between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. By God's grace and mercy, repentant sinners are enfolded into that love as Christ is formed in them by the Spirit. And all who believe and trust in Christ enter into an eternal communion of inexpressible joy before the face of God. And by that same faith, we declare with the church throughout the ages, Jesus Christ is risen indeed. And we embrace his promise that he has both gone to prepare a place for us and that he will surely bring us there. For he says, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And then, then at that time, we shall hold on to him and never let go. As you leave this morning, reflecting upon an empty tomb and a resurrected Savior, May the words of the poet and the story of Mary stir joy in your heart. My beloved is mine, and I am his forevermore. Let's pray. O Father, does the scripture not rightly declare that you do exceedingly abundantly beyond what we ask or think? You sent your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, to stand in our place, to take on the awful curse of the cross. And his resurrection is a declaration that the penalty is complete. And through his Spirit, you have awakened our hearts and minds to the things of Christ. And so we now long for a day when we will see his face. But in this in-between time, We pray that you would be our comfort and sufficiency. That you would grant us the grace to walk as those whose unrivaled desire is to know the consummate embrace of your presence in glory forever. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.